Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 14, War of the Currents, Part 2, First Casualties, 1888. Before we get going this week, just a couple of things I wanted to mention. First, I'm just getting over a bad cold, so I hope I don't sound too terrible or too congested. I'll do my best to edit out all the sneezing. Second, I wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who left a rating and a review for the show on iTunes since the last episode. I've noticed the number of starred reviews has gone up, and that's great. Now, because I'm in Canada, I can't always see the text of reviews left on the various international instances of iTunes, even though I have a program that's supposed to let me see them, though I'm not sure it always sends them all through. But it did send me a new review this past week, though, and I thought that maybe as new reviews get posted, or at least as I become aware of them, I'll try to do a shout-out to the reviewer on the next episode. I can do this for the Facebook group, too, from now on as people leave ratings and reviews there. So, a big thanks this week to listener Tom3, three like Roman numerals, from the United States, who writes, Interested in the history of electrical technology? This engaging, at times humorous, very informative, smoothly produced podcast should be on your shortlist. Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it, and I'm glad you like the show. Although I confess I did have to laugh when I read that the podcast was, at times humorous, as I couldn't figure out whether you meant that I sometimes throw in humor, or that I only sometimes succeed in my attempts at humor. I'm gonna hope it's the first one, but either way, thanks for listening and for the review. If you'd like to leave a rating and review, and maybe get a shout out here, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave one there, as it helps the discoverability of the show and means that people will be able to find it more easily when searching for podcasts about Tesla. You can also join the Tesla The Life and Times podcast Facebook page and leave a rating and review there. And third and finally, a word especially to our listeners in Canada. So, remember how I've mentioned from time to time that I write science fiction? Well, it's time for the annual Aurora Award nominations. The Aurora is Canada's top prize in speculative fiction, awarded annually for the best science fiction and fantasy by Canadians of the previous year. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that the Venn diagram of people who are interested in Nikola Tesla and people who are interested in science fiction is going to have a pretty significant overlap. So I wanted to make you, our Canadian listeners in particular, aware that I have a short story eligible for nomination. The Waxing Disquiet was co-authored with Tony Pye, an award-winning author in his own right, and is eligible in the Best Short Fiction category. It's a story of love and political intrigue on a world almost totally devoid of metal. As a result, the highly advanced culture that has developed on this world has relied on sand and stone and wood and wax to build their civilization. They've modeled their caste system on the structure of a beehive, using giant water and candle-powered analog computers to direct their society. You may have heard of cyberpunk or steampunk. Well, Tony and I call this candlepunk. It was a really fun challenge to build a world so different from our own, and it's a tale that both Tony and I are really proud of, and a world in which we hope to write again. 
Possibly the coolest thing about this story is that the candle-punk computers we described were used in real life as inspiration for two separate teams of University of Toronto engineering students as the basis for their end-of-year projects in mechanical design. The unique challenges of building a computer using wood and wax and weights and strings turned out to be not just of interest to a couple of writers. Tony and I got invited to watch the final presentations and the demonstrations of the tabletop models that the students had made. It was a pretty fun moment to see something that you'd only imagine come to life, at least in a scale model size. So, if you're intrigued, you can read the story right now for free on my website at kotowich.com slash fiction slash the dash waxing dash disquiet. But who are we kidding? You're never going to remember that URL. So, instead, just use this short link, bit.ly slash kotowich. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash K-O-T-O-W-Y-C-H, and it will take you right there. I hope you enjoy the story, and if so, that you'll consider nominating The Waxing Disquiet for Best Short Fiction. Links to the Aurora Award page can be found at that same short link, bit.ly slash You have to register to nominate, but once the finalists are announced, you get access to ebooks of all the nominated fiction, including full novels, anthologies, short stories, etc., and you'll get to vote for the winners too. That's a lot of great science fiction and fantasy, and to me, is kind of worth participating for all on its own. Now, unfortunately, you do have to be a Canadian citizen or permanent resident of Canada to be eligible to nominate. So, if you're listening to this and you are not a Canadian citizen or permanent resident of Canada, well, I hope you'll check out the story anyway. Like I said, it's one we're really proud of, and I hope you'll like it. It will be available to read on my website until May 26, 2018, when nominations for this year's Aurora Awards close. Okay, thanks for indulging me in all that. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Where were we? Oh, yes. The War of the Currents. I'm going to do something with this episode that I've not had to do before. Include a viewer discretion advised warning here at the start. War is hell, the saying goes, and the War of the Currents was, at least in some respects, no different. We're still working to catch up to Tesla toward the end of 1889. Remember, he's still recovering in that monastery in Croatia. But this week's episode deals with Harold Brown's experiments on behalf of Edison and DC Power to prove that AC current was deadly. Since I know that some of you listen to this on your morning commute, or with kids in the car, I want to caution you that this episode deals with Brown's gruesome, and fatal, experimentation on stray dogs. Now, I'm going to do my best not to sensationalize things, and I in no way wish to dwell on the gory particulars. I'm going to keep details to a minimum, and I'm not going to go through every record, and there are plenty, from Brown's experimental notebook. However, we do need to talk about these experiments, in part because they show just how cutthroat the War of the Currents became, and in part because of their larger implications in American society. These experiments paved the way, in no small part, for the introduction of the electric chair as a means of capital punishment first in New York State, 
and later elsewhere. Billed as a humane, scientific alternative to hanging, as we'll talk about in the next episode, Edison and Brown were secretly involved behind the scenes with the technology of the electric chair, which they urged use alternating current for the fatal electrocution, in part because they hoped that associating AC with old Sparky would frighten the average consumer away from using AC for residential or commercial purposes. There was even a push on the part of these DC partisans to call being electrocuted to death in the chair, quote, getting Westinghoused. So, fair warning, you may want your kids, and probably your pets, out of earshot for this episode. Now then, when we left off last time, Brown had been shouted down at a meeting of the New York Board of Electrical Control, the newly formed body in charge of regulating the city's unruly new electrical industry. He felt his opponents had, quote, done all they could do to publicly blast my reputation and stamp me as an ignorant imposter in electrical engineering. I must show from their own current and its effects upon life as compared with continuous currents that my statements are true, wrote Brown. Words are of no avail against such accusations as theirs. So that's when he approached Edison, who gave him facilities and equipment and staff at the newly expanded Edison Labs in West Orange, New Jersey, and that's where we pick up today. As we mentioned last time, all that Brown and his accomplices needed for their experiments were test subjects. So, in early July 1888, word went out on the streets of West Orange, New Jersey, that the Edison Lab would pay 25 cents for every stray dog delivered to its door. Neighborhood boys led the roundup, and the lab soon had more than enough subjects for Brown's experiments. Cats were briefly considered as test subjects, but rejected because, as Brown later explained, the cat is very apt to wiggle around when you attempt to apply the electrode, and they also have claws. As if conscious of their guilt for what they were about to undertake, Brown and his colleagues waited for the cover of darkness to begin their experiments. At 10 p.m. on the night of July 10th, they hooked up their first dog to the electrodes. Brown had set up a portable dynamo capable of generating 1,500 volts. Leads were attached to two of the dog's legs. Brown detailed the proceedings in his lab notebook. First experiment, dog number one. Old black and tan female, low vitality, weight not taken, about 10 pounds. Resistance from right front to left hind leg, 7,500 ohms. Connection made through roll of wet cotton waste held in place by wrappings of bare copper wire. Continuous direct current used. Electromotive force at time of closing circuit 800 volts. Time of contact through dog 2 seconds. What this clinical, dispassionate prose is describing is the agonizing electrocution of a stray dog. For 2 seconds, 800 volts of direct current surged through this dog, from its front leg, through its body, and out its back leg. The dog itself became, for those two seconds, part of an electrical circuit. Now, two seconds may not sound like a lot, but consider that 800 volts is enough to run three modern refrigerators. It was a massive amount of power to send through this animal, and no steps were taken to mitigate or alleviate any of the pain that this animal was to feel. To give us a sense of what a human would experience with such a shock, we have none other than our old friend and Edison's right-hand man, Charles Batchelor, as a witness. At one point during the course of Brown's experiments, 
Bachelor, who was assisting, was severely shocked himself when holding down a puppy. He felt, quote, body and soul being wrenched asunder, the sensations of an immense rough file thrust through the quivering fibers of my body. Indeed, the nature of his subject's suffering was part of what Brown was interested in. After all, he wanted to be able to tell people how deadly AC current was, but how much the better to tell them how agonizing the death would be too. Remember what I said last time about you probably not liking Brown very much by the time this is all over? When Brown threw the switch, the dog howled in pain and struggled violently to escape. Proof to Brown, quote, that it had control of its muscles and that nerve functions were not destroyed. After the current was cut, the dog howled all the more loudly and wailed and rushed around in pain for two and a half minutes before falling to the ground. Twenty-one minutes after the dog was electrocuted, its heart stopped. Noting his findings, Brown moved on to a second dog. This time, he zapped a half-St. Bernard puppy, which he estimated weighed about 20 pounds, with 200 volts, about what it takes to power an electric blanket, and did so for two seconds. The dog yelped, but it was nothing like the earlier experiment. When the dog seemed basically unharmed, Brown declared that 200 volts of DC was entirely harmless. So, Brown did another round of shocks on this same puppy, but this time with alternating current. The dog again got 200 volts, but at 660 cycles per minute for two seconds. As the circuit closed, the dog's body stiffened. When the current switched off, it howled in pain and tried to escape, though weakly. Brown was disappointed at the results, clearly expecting that AC would have done more damage or killed the dog outright. He ordered that the puppy undergo another AC blast, but this time ramped up to 800 volts and 1600 cycles per minute for three seconds. At this point, Brown seemed to be pulling numbers for voltages and cycles and durations out of thin air. When the circuit closed this time, the effect on the dog was dramatic. He was described as rigid and looking more like a statue of a dog than a real animal. When the current was cut, the dog collapsed and died within 15 seconds. Satisfied with the results, Brown called it a night. It's not known whether Edison was present at this first round of experiments, but he certainly gave Brown a venue for his work, and we know that Edison would witness later such electrocutions. Edison himself had a history with zapping animals, having built an electric rat paralyzer in his telegraph days that he cleverly said, quote, electrified the rats. Now, it's not my intention to wade into a debate on the merits of animal testing in scientific research, but I should point out that this was the late 19th century, and animals were widely used in experiments at the time. However, despite that, I think we can single out Brown's experiments as particularly gruesome and egregious, even by the standards of the time. As we'll see later, even many contemporaries agreed with that assessment. Not only that, but if we put aside the cruelty and any moral questions we may have about his work, it's plain on the face of it that Brown was engaged in flat-out bad science. Simply put, if you really wanted to know how electricity affected the bodies of these dogs, this was not the way to go about it. There were no control subjects. The weight of each dog, a crucial factor in determining their resistance to electricity, 
was merely estimated. The strength of the current was chosen willy-nilly. Brown seemed to pick the duration of the shocks out of a hat. The St. Bernard puppy was subjected to multiple shocks of varying voltages of both DC and AC power, making it impossible to single out which of these actually killed him, or whether it was simply a cumulative effect. And neither dog was dissected to determine the current's effects. All of which didn't bother Brown. He wasn't interested in scientific facts, really. He wanted a propaganda tool for the war of the currents, and he had it. AC would kill. He'd seen it with his own eyes. And now, he thought, others should see it too. Two days after this first experiment, Edison invited several members of the New York City Board of Electrical Control to his laboratory, along with a New York Times reporter. The visitors were ushered around on a tour of the new Edison labs, and then led to a small experiment room. There, a Wheatstone bridge, a device used to measure electrical resistance, was waiting for them. Each commission member, as well as the reporter, was attached and painlessly had his resistance to electricity measured. Every creature has a unique resistance to electricity, Edison told the group. Delivering a fatal shock of electricity was simply a matter of overcoming that resistance with a powerful enough current. Edison knew that a demonstration of Brown's dog experiments would be too risky and probably too ghastly to show the group, especially in the presence of a newspaper reporter. So instead, he stressed the scientific aspects of the experiments. Although the animal experiments had just begun, Edison declared that alternating current already had shown itself to be especially deadly. At this point, the group was interrupted by a lawyer who opposed a recent law passed in New York State that would allow execution by electrocution. We'll get to that in a minute. And by another man, who turned out to be an employee of the Westinghouse Electric Light Company, there to check up on Edison's claims about the AC system. Harold Brown immediately denounced the intruder, and even the Times reporter thought that the Westinghouse man had, quote, overstepped the bounds of courtesy in entering the establishment of a rival when experiments might be going on. This left Brown and Edison with a sure sense that Westinghouse was their arch-rival in the industry. After the commissioners left, it was time for round two of the animal experiments. This time, perhaps at Edison's suggestion, Brown attempted more scientific rigor. Each dog's height, weight, and length were noted. He also set up a relay that illuminated eight lamps when the circuit was closed, so he could better judge the length of time the current was flowing through the wire and into the dog. Dr. Frederick Peterson, a friend of Edison who used electricity in his practice to treat a variety of ailments, was also on hand to dissect any dog that was killed. Remember Dr. Peterson's name, he'll crop up a couple of times. I'll spare you the particulars of what came next, but over the next couple of hours, five dogs were subjected to a combined 16 rounds of electrical shocks of various intensities and durations by both AC and DC current. All but one died. As the night wore on, and particularly as one dog alone received a half-dozen shocks, the Edison men who were assisting Brown grew increasingly agitated and uncomfortable with what was going on. Indeed, after the seventh successive shock was administered to that final dog, a half-shepherd mix, one of the Edison men scooped the dog up and announced that he was adopting him on the spot. 
That put an end to the evening's work, but not to Brown's so-called experimenting. Over the following two weeks, he conducted 11 more dog experiments using alternating current, all of which resulted in a dog's death. In all, Brown experimented on 44 dogs at the Edison lab, torturing them all and killing all but a handful. He would never show any remorse over the suffering he inflicted. Throughout, Brown's methodology remained sloppy, and he even acknowledged in later notes that some of the equipment was faulty toward the end of the sessions, rendering all data from them unreliable. Not that it mattered. From the first, Brown hadn't really been interested in facts or data. He had a predetermined conclusion in mind when he began, and all he had to do was warp his findings to suit that narrative. That DC was perfectly safe, and that AC was an electric killing machine. I determined to the satisfaction of Mr. Edison and other prominent scientists the exact pressure required to produce death with the continuous and with the alternating current, Brown declared. Now, Edison was no dummy, and having already intuited something off about the character of Brown, must have known that the experiments were pseudoscience. But, but they did provide just the sort of conclusions Edison had been looking for in his increasingly bitter fight against AC. When Brown and Edison released news of the experiments, the Westinghouse people went nuts. How could experiments that were closed to the public and performed by an electrician with a long-standing interest in promoting DC over AC be trusted? While it was a legitimate question, Brown again took umbrage, thinking the questions an affront to his reputation. So, he announced plans for a public demonstration to prove the integrity of his experiments and of his conclusions that AC was inherently deadly. Meanwhile, in Pittsburgh, George Westinghouse was appalled by the growing savagery of the AC-DC battle. The struggle for the control of the electric light and power business has never been exceeded in bitterness by any of the historical commercial controversies of a former day, Westinghouse wrote. Attempting to cool things down, he sent a personal note to Edison to propose peace. I believe there has been a systematic attempt on the part of some people to do a great deal of mischief, and create as great a difference as possible between the Edison Company and the Westinghouse Electric Co., when there ought to be an entirely different condition of affairs. I have a lively recollection of the pains that you took to show me through your works at Menlo Park when I was in pursuit of a plant for my house, and before you were ready for business. It would be a pleasure to me if you should find it convenient to make me a visit here in Pittsburgh, when I will be glad to reciprocate the attention shown me by you. Edison responded tersely. My laboratory work consumes the whole of my time. Thank you for your kind invitation to visit you in Pittsburgh. And that was it. Not long after, Edison's sales force began accusing their Westinghouse rivals of lying about AC's advantages. Westinghouse was so enraged that he, not for the first time, considered suing Edison. But, as with the other occasions, he decided it might give the anti-AC faction too much publicity. Instead, Westinghouse and his company tried to appeal to reason in the face of Brown and Edison's tactics. Westinghouse argued that Brown's dog experiments didn't prove that AC was any more dangerous than DC. Anyone touching a live 100-volt DC wire would find it 
painful beyond endurance, he explained. Just remember the report from Bachelor that we mentioned a few minutes ago. He pointed out that the voltage entering a customer's house in the Westinghouse system was less than half the voltage of the Edison DC system. A letter published in the Trade Journal of Electrical World, signed by a Westinghouse vice president, stated flatly, quote, The effect of the alternating current upon animal life is immensely less, both as to burning and possible death, than the direct current of the same volume and pressure. But as is too often the case in American life, appeals to reason went unheeded in the face of appeals to fear and base emotion. How could people expect to listen to boring rational arguments, when also on offer were what one person has rightly described as, quote, Harold Brown's Carnival Barker pronouncements. Okay, Westinghouse decided, if diplomacy and fair-minded argument wouldn't win the day, then it was to be all-out war after all. And if Edison wanted a war, Westinghouse, a titan of cutthroat Gilded Age business, who Tesla once described as the fiercest of adversaries when crossed, would give Edison a war. Westinghouse had put off answering Brown's charges before the New York City Board of Electrical Control that we mentioned earlier. But no longer. Westinghouse drafted his response to the board and started off by throwing shade at Edison. Westinghouse had been too busy to reply to the board because of the staggering amount of work needed to be done around the Westinghouse Electric Company given how successful AC power was becoming. Westinghouse and its licensee Thompson Houston had installed 127 AC stations, 98 of which were already up and running, and a third of those had already been expanded, including the plant in Pittsburgh, which was now the largest incandescent lighting station in the world. With so much business, explained Westinghouse, quote, it has been considered inexpedient heretofore to take any notice of, or make any reply to, the criticisms and attacks of some of the opposition electric lighting companies. He confessed his amazement at Brown and Edison's method of attack which has been more unmanly, discreditable, and untruthful than any competition which has ever come to my knowledge. To their charges of danger, Westinghouse offered the statistic that no Westinghouse central station had sustained, quote, a single case of fire of any description from the use of our system. Of the 125 central stations of the leading direct current company, uh, by which he meant Edison, there are numerous cases of fire, in three of which cases the central station itself was entirely destroyed, and most recent being the destruction of the Boston station, while among the almost innumerable fires caused by this system, among the users may be mentioned the total destruction of a large theater at Philadelphia. Once Westinghouse's letter was read into the record, eight pro-AC affidavits received by the board in the intervening weeks were also read into the record. Then the floor was turned over to the testimonial of W.L. Wright, an electrical worker who told a story about his own electrocution by the supposedly fatal AC current. Working on some wires in a damp basement and forgetting that a 1,000-volt current was active in it, quote, I took hold of the socket while standing on the wet ground when I received a shock which threw me on my face and with my hand underneath me, still handling the socket. When I came to my senses, I was sitting in the cellar held up by two of the men. In the meantime, an ambulance had been called. I went down to the electric light station and waited there for 15 or 20 minutes to receive my money, it being payday, and then went home. 
The company insisted he visit a doctor, who dressed his burned hand. These burns healed very slowly, but I have not felt in any way any of the after-effects from this shock, such as are usually felt from the high-tension direct current machines. I feel sure that had I received this kind of shock from a direct current machine of any of the ordinary types, it would have been fatal. It should be noted that after his fireworks before the board a month or so earlier, Harold Brown begged off attending the July 1888 session in which his opponents would make their rebuttals, claiming pressing business in Virginia. The next anyone heard from Brown was when engraved invitations were sent to the members of the New York City Board of Electrical Control, representatives of all the electric light companies, and others in the electrical industry, that announced Brown's latest demonstration at the Columbia University School of Mines in New York City. The invitations, however, offered few other details. No intimation of the character of the exhibition had been given, noted one journal. Close to 800 curious onlookers packed into the lecture hall, including the New York City Board of Electrical Control, a large contingent of Westinghouse men, and reporters from the leading New York papers. Edison did not attend, but electrical equipment from his lab did, along with Arthur Kennelly, his chief electrician, and Dr. Frederick Peterson, who we mentioned a bit earlier, as well as a few other assistants. Gentlemen, began Brown's opening remarks, it is only by my sense of right that I have been drawn into this controversy. I represent no company and have no financial or commercial interest. This drew laughs from the AC backers. I do not propose to present a scientific paper to you this afternoon, but will simply give you a few samples of the experiments I have been engaged in for a considerable time. I have proved by repeated experiments that a living creature could stand shock from a continuous current much better than from an alternating current. I have applied a current of 1,410 volts to a dog without fatal result, and I have repeatedly killed dogs with from 500 to 800 volts of alternating current. Those advocates of the alternating system who claim to have withstood a shock of 1,000 volts of alternating current without injury must have worn lightning rods. From offstage, Brown produced a 76-pound Newfoundland. If you've never seen a Newfoundland dog before, Google it. I've seen smaller ponies. With the help of his several assistants, Brown muzzled the dog, placed it in a wire cage, and tied it down with rope. Brown said the dog was in perfect health, but of vicious disposition, perhaps trying to soften for the audience what was to come, suggesting perhaps that the dog deserved it or somehow had it coming. He measured the dog's resistance and announced it to the crowd as 10,300 ohms. This was more than four times the resistance of the men who had visited Edison's lab just weeks before to hear about Brown's experiment. Wire leads from a generator were attached to the dog's legs. My first experiment will be with the continuous current, Brown announced. I shall apply a continuous current with an electromotive force of 300 volts. The crowd waited in silence. Brown closed the circuit and the dog yelped. Some in the crowd flinched. As you can see, the dog is unhurt, Brown said. I shall now increase the force to 400 volts. The dog cried out and made a desperate effort to escape. Audience members began shifting uncomfortably in their seats. And now 700 volts. The dog howled and thrashed about so hard 
Then it broke free of its muzzle and snapped the rope that was holding it down. Brown had it restrained. There were audible murmurs of disapproval in the lecture hall now. The room was beginning to overheat, a combination of the warm summer day and the press of 800 bodies. 1,000 volts, he announced as the next dose. The Newfoundland's entire body contorted with pain. Some in the audience averted their eyes. Many spectators left the room, reported one journal, unable to endure the revolting exhibition. Some in the audience began shouting at Brown to stop. This dog will have less trouble when we try the alternating current, Brown replied, and then made a gruesome attempt at a joke. As these gentlemen say, we shall make him feel better. A 330-volt burst of alternating current zapped the Newfoundland, and the dog collapsed dead. The AC backers were outraged. The Newfoundland had clearly been close to death from successive jolts of DC. The final burst of AC merely finished the job, they argued. Brown stepped off the platform and returned with another dog, which, he said, would be subjected solely to alternating current. At that moment, a reporter for the New York World stood up, shouting at Brown to stop his torture of the dogs, which emboldened an agent for the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the ASPCA, to step forward and forbid Brown from executing another dog. Why this guy from the ASPCA was sitting on his hands to this point is a genuine mystery. In any case, sensing that the audience had turned on him, Brown reluctantly led the dog off stage. With the crowd in an uproar, one alternating current supporter stood and demanded that if Brown truly believed DC was harmless, he'd have no problem putting his money where his current was. The man proposed to subject a member of his company to 1,000 volts of AC if Brown would agree to take the same voltage of DC. Guess what Brown did? (laughs) Knowing this would probably kill him, Brown demurred. The audience howled in protest. I wish this experiment had not been interrupted, Brown declared as people stormed out. I have enough dogs to satisfy the most skeptical. The only places where alternating current should be used are the dog pound, the slaughterhouse, and the state prison. The demonstration fell completely apart. Despite Brown's claim that he had provided the demanded proof of AC's lethality, few in the audience agreed. Instead, he'd only provided proof of his own cruelty and cowardice. Even the egotistical Brown realized that his demonstration had been a failure. So, he convened a second exhibition at Columbia four days later, this time closing it to the public as well as to supporters of the AC format, though they sent notice that they refused to come anyway. Attending were a number of journalists, as well as several physicians advising the New York State Legislature about its new execution law, a law which favored electrocution as a humane method of execution versus hanging. So assembled, the men witnessed the electrocution deaths of three more dogs at Brown's hand. At the end, Brown issued a report signed by he and the attending physicians, which came to some questionable conclusions. All of the physicians present expressed the opinion that a dog had a higher vitality than a man, Brown reported, and that therefore a current which killed a dog would be fatal to a man under the same conditions. It was their opinion that all of these deaths were painless, 
as the nerves were probably destroyed in less time than that required to transmit the impressions to the brain of the subject. Based on what Brown had witnessed from his own multiple experiments on dogs, if any of these physicians are your doctor, well, I'd advise you to seek a second opinion. One of the signing physicians was our old friend, Dr. Frederick Peterson, who you recall had assisted Brown on a number of occasions in his dog experiments. This same Dr. Peterson was soon to be appointed chairman of the Medico-Legal Society Committee that would make detailed recommendations to the state legislature about how best to implement New York's new execution law. Brown had hit the jackpot. Having started his anti-AC campaign in the hopes of swaying public opinion in D.C.'s favor and drumming up some new business for himself, Brown now counted as allies both Edison and the chair of the committee that would decide what kind of current, AC or DC, would be used to kill human beings. At last, Brown felt vindicated, like no one could any longer assail his credentials as an electrical expert. The day after this second triumphant display, Brown wrote to Arthur Kennelly back in West Orange. We made a fine exhibit yesterday, as you will see from all the papers, and I had the report of the proceedings signed by all present and sent to the Associated Press throughout the country. Whatever action the Board of Electrical Control may take, it is certain that yesterday's work will get a law passed by the legislature in the fall, limiting the voltage of alternating currents to 300 volts. Next time, we'll see the impact that Brown's animal experiments had on New York State's decision to begin executing people using the electric chair. And we'll see the skullduggery used by Edison and his DC supporters in the War of the Currents to ensure that alternating, not direct, current was used to power the device euphemistically known as Old Sparky. Thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. And I apologize again if my voice sounds a little off this week. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it, or share a link via your social media. Please take just a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review. As mentioned at the top of the show, as reviews from iTunes come in, I'll do a shout out as a thank you on the next episode. Past episodes of the show can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list, you can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Cottowich.